Section twenty eight of Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. The Great Explorers and Travellers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter two, Part one. French Circumnavigators, four. After this long and fruitful stay in New Holland, the Uranie put to sea on the 25th of December, 1819, and steered so as to pass to the south of New Zealand and Campbell Island with the view of doubling Cape Horn. A few days afterwards, ten fugitive convicts were discovered on board, but the corvette had left the shores of Australia too far behind to allow of their restoration. The coast of Tierra del Fuego was reached without anything worthy of special notice having occurred during a very prosperous voyage with the prevailing west wind. On the 5th of February, Cape Desolation was sighted. Having doubled Cape Horn without any difficulty, the Uranie let go her anchor in the Bay of Good Success, with the shores lined with grand forest trees and echoing to the sound of waterfalls, presented a scene totally different from the sterile desolation generally characterising this quarter of the globe. No long stay was, however, made there. The corvette, resuming her voyage, lost no time in entering the Strait of Le Maire, notwithstanding a dense haze. Here she met with a heavy swell, a strong gale, and a mist so thick that land, sea, and sky were confounded in one general obscurity. The rain and the heavy spray raised by the storm and the coming on of night made it necessary to put the Uranie under a close-reefed topsail and jib, under which pressure of sail she behaved splendidly. The only available course was to run before the wind, and the travellers had just begun to feel thankful for their good fortune in being driven by the storm far away from the land, when the cry was heard, land close ahead. All hearts sunk with despair. Shipwreck and death seemed inevitable. Freycinet alone, after a brief instant of hesitation, recovered his self-command, it was impossible that land could be ahead. He therefore kept on his northerly course, spurring a little east, and the correctness of his calculations was soon verified. On the next day but one, the weather grew calmer. Observations were taken, and as they proved the vessel to have run a great distance from the Bay of Good Success, the commander had to choose between a port of call off the coast of South America or off the Falkland Islands. The island of Conti, the Bay of Marvi, and Cape Dura were successively observed through the haze, whilst a favourable breeze speeded the corvette on her course to Berkeley Sound, fixed on as the best place for the next halt. Mutual congratulations were already being exchanged on the happy termination of the dangerous struggle and on the fortunate escape from any serious accident 
during so hazardous a trip. The sailors all rejoiced, to use the words of Byron, that the worst was over and the rest seemed sure. But a severe trial was still in store for them. On entering Berkeley Sound, every man was at his post, ready to let go the anchor. The lookouts were on the watch, men were stationed in the main shrouds to heave the lead. Then, first at twenty, after at eighteen fathoms, the presence of rocks was reported. The ship was now about half a league offshore, and Freysenet thought it prudent to put her off about two points. This precaution proved fatal, for the corvette suddenly struck violently on a hidden rock. As she struck, the soundings gave fifteen fathoms to starboard and twelve to larboard. The reef against which the corvette had run was therefore not so wide as the vessel itself. In fact, it was but the pointed summit of a rock. The immediate rising of pieces of wood to the surface of the water at once gave reason for fears that the injury was serious. There was a rush to the pumps. Water was pouring into the hold. Freysenet had sent for a sail and had it passed under the vessel in such a manner that the pressure of the water forcing it into the leak in a measure stopped it up. But it was of no avail. Although the whole ship's company, officers and sailors alike, worked at the pumps, no more could be done than just keep the water from gaining on the vessel. There was nothing for it but to run her ashore. This decision, painful as it was, had to be carried out, and it was indeed no easy task. On every side the land was girded with rocks, and only at the very bottom of the bay was there a strip of sandy beach favourable for running the ship aground. Meanwhile the wind had become contrary, night was approaching, the vessel was already half full of water. The distress of the commander can be imagined, but there was no alternative, so the vessel was stranded on Penguin Island. This affected, to quote Freysenet, the men were so exhausted that it was necessary to cease further work of every kind and to allow the crew an interval of rest, all the more indispensable on account of the hardships and dangers which our present disastrous situation must entail upon all. As for myself, repose was out of the question. Tormented by a thousand harassing reflections, I could scarcely credit my own existence. The sudden transition from a position where all things seemed to smile on me to that in which I found myself at that moment weighed on my spirits like a horrible nightmare. It was difficult to regain the composure necessary to face fairly the painful trial. All my companions had done their duty in the frightful accident which had all but cost us our lives, and I am glad to be able to do justice to their admirable conduct. As soon as daylight revealed the nature of the country, a mournful, gloomy look settled upon every countenance. Not a tree, not so much as a blade of grass was to be seen, not a sound was to be heard, and the silent desolation around 
reminded us of the Bay of Sharks. But there was no time to be lost in vain lamentations. Was the sea to be allowed to swallow up the journals and observations, the precious results of so much labour and so many hardships? All the papers were saved. The same good fortune did not, unfortunately, attend the collections. Several cases of specimens which were at the bottom of the hold were entirely lost. Others were damaged by the sea-water. The collections that sustained the chief injury were those of natural history and the herbarium that had been put together with infinite trouble by Godichaud. The merino sheep, generously presented to the expedition by Mr. MacArthur of Sydney, which it was hoped could be acclimatised in France, were brought on shore, as also were all the animals still alive. A few tents were pitched, first for the sick, happily not very numerous, and then for the officers and the crew. The provisions and ammunition taken out of the ship were carefully deposited in a place where they would be sheltered from the inclemency of the weather. The alcoholic liquors were allowed to remain on board until the time arrived for quitting the scene of the shipwreck, and during the three months of the expedition's stay here not a single theft of rum or of brandy came to light, although no one had anything to drink but pure water. The efforts of the whole of the expedition were steadily applied to the task of trying to repair the main injuries sustained by the Eurénie, with the exception of a few sailors told off to provide, by hunting and fishing, for the subsistence of the community. The lakes were frequented by numbers of sea lions, geese, ducks, teal and snipe, but it was no easy matter to procure, at one time, a sufficient quantity of these animals to serve for the food of the entire crew. At the same time, the expenditure of powder was necessarily considerable. As good luck would have it, gulls abounded in sufficient numbers to furnish a hundred and twenty men with food for four or five months, and these creatures were so stupid as to allow themselves to be knocked on the head with a stick. A few horses were also killed, which had relapsed into a wild state since the departure of the colony founded by Bougainville. By the 28th of February, the painful conclusion was come to that, with the slender resources available, it was impracticable to repair the damage done to the Eurénie, especially as the original injury had been aggravated by the repeated shocks occasioned by thumping on the beach. What was to be done? Should the explorers calmly wait until some vessel chanced to put in at Berkeley Sound? This would be to leave the sailors with nothing to do, and this enforced idleness would open the door to disorder and insubordination. Would it not be better to build a small vessel out of the wreckage of the Eurénie? As it happened, there was a large sloop belonging to the ship, if the sides were raised and a deck added, it might be possible to reach Montevideo, and there obtain the assistance of a vessel capable of bringing off in safety the members of the expedition and all the cargo worth preserving. This latter plan met with the approval of Freycinet, 
and a decision once come to, not a moment was wasted. The sailors, animated with fresh energy, rapidly pushed on the work. Now was proved to the sound judgment of the commander when manning the corvette at Toulon in selecting sailors who were also skilled in some mechanical employment. Blacksmiths, sailmakers, rope-makers, sawyers, all worked with zeal at the different tasks assigned to them. No doubts were entertained of the success of the voyage before them. Montevideo was separated from the Falkland Islands by but 350 nautical miles, and with the winds prevailing in these latitudes at this time of the year, this distance could be traversed in a few days by the Esperance, for so the transformed sloop was named. To provide at the same time against the possible contingency of the frail vessel failing to reach the Rio de la Plata, Freycinet determined to commence the construction of a schooner of a hundred tons as soon as the sloop had taken her departure. Notwithstanding the incessant demands on the energies of war made by the arduous and varied tasks involved in reconstruction and refitting of the new vessel, the usual astronomical and physical observations, the natural history researches, and the hydrographical surveys were not neglected. No one could have imagined that the stay in Berkeley Sound was anything more than an ordinary halt for exploring purposes. At last the sloop was finished and safely launched. The instructions for Captain Duperry, appointed to take command, were all drawn up. The crew was selected, the provisions were on board. In two days the adventurers were to sail when, on the 19th of March, 1820, the cry was raised, A sail! A sail! A sloop under full sail was seen entering the bay. A cannon was fired several times to attract attention, and in a short time the master of the new arrival was on shore. In a few words, Freycinet explained to him the misadventure which had led to the residence of the explorers upon this desolate coast. The master stated in reply that he was under the orders of the captain of an American ship, the General Knox, engaged in the seal fishery at West Island, to the west of the Falklands. An officer was at once deputed to go and ascertain from the captain what succour he could render to the French travellers. The result of the interview was a demand for 135,750 francs for the conveyance of the shipwrecked strangers to Rio. An unworthy advantage to take of the necessities of the unfortunate. To such a bargain, the French officer was unwilling to agree without the consent of his commander, so he begged the American captain to sail for Berkeley Sound. While these negotiations were going on, however, another ship, the Mercury, under the command of Captain Galvin, had made its appearance in the bay. The Mercury was bound from Buenos Aires to Valparaiso with cannon, but just before doubling Cape Horn, she had sprung a leak and was compelled to put in at the Falkland Islands to make the necessary repairs. It was a fortunate incident for the Frenchmen, who knew they could turn to account 
the competition which must result from the arrival of two ships. Freysenet at once made an offer to Captain Galvin to repair the damage the Mercury had sustained with the materials and the labour at his command, asking in return for this service a free passage for himself and his companions to Rio de Janeiro. At the end of fifteen days the repairs of the Mercury were completed. While they were going on, the negotiation with the General Knox was terminated by a positive refusal on the part of Freycinet to agree to the extravagant terms proposed by the American captain. It took several days to come to a settlement with Captain Galvin, who finally made the following agreement. 1. Captain Galvin engaged to convey to Rio the wrecked persons, their papers, collections and instruments, as well as all the cargo saved out of the Uranie that could be got on board. 2. Freycinet and his people were, during the passage, to subsist entirely on the provisions set apart for them. 3. That the captain was to receive the sum of 97,740 francs within ten days of their arrival at Rio. By the acceptance of these truly extortionate conditions, a bargain which had cost much dispute was finally settled. Before leaving the Falklands, however, the naturalist Gaudichot planted its destitute shores with several sorts of vegetables, which he thought likely to be of service to future voyagers who might be detained there. A few particulars regarding this archipelago will not be without interest. The group, lying between 50 degrees 57 minutes and 52 degrees 45 minutes south latitude, and 60 degrees 4 minutes, 63 degrees 48 minutes, west of the meridian of Paris, consists of several islets and two principal islands, named Conti and Maidenland. Berkeley Sound, situated in the extreme east of the Conti Island, is a wide opening rather deep than extensive, with a shelving rocky coast. The temperature of the islands is milder than one would expect from the high latitude. Snow does not fall in any great quantity, and does not remain even on the summits of the highest hills longer than for about two months. The streams are never frozen, and the lakes and marshes are never covered with ice hard enough to bear the weight of a man for more than twenty-four hours consecutively. From the observations of Weddell, who visited these parts between 1822 and 1824, the temperature must have risen considerably during the last forty years in consequence of a change in the direction taken by the icebergs, which melt away in the mid-Atlantic. Monsieur Coy, the naturalist, judging from the shallowness of the sea between the Falkland Islands and South America, as well as the resemblance of their grassy plains to the pampas of Buenos Aires, is of opinion that they once formed part of the continent. These plains are low, marshy, covered with tall grass and shrubs, and are inundated in the winter. Peat is abundant and makes excellent fuel. The character of the soil has proved an obstacle to the growth of the trees which 
Bougainville endeavoured to acclimatise, of which scarce a vestige remained at the time of Freycinet's visit. The plant which reaches the greatest height and grows most plentifully is a species of sword-grass, excellent food for cattle and serving also as a place of shelter to numbers of seals and multitudes of gulls. It is this high grass which sailors had taken from a distance for bushes. The only vegetables growing on these islands of any use to man are celery, scurvy grass, watercress, dandelion, raspberries, sorrel and pimpernel. Both French and Spanish colonists had at different times imported into these islands oxen, horses and pigs, which had multiplied to a singular extent in the island of Conti, but the persistent hunting of them by the crews of the whaling ships must tend to considerably reduce their numbers. The only quadruped indigenous to the Falkland Islands is the Antarctic dog, the muzzle of which strikingly resembles that of the fox. It has therefore had the name dog-fox or wolf-fox given to it by whalers. These animals are so fierce that they rushed into the water to attack Byron's sailors. They, however, find rabbits enough, whose reproductive powers are limitless, to satisfy them. But the seals, which the dogs attack without any fear, manage to escape from them. The Mercury set sail on the 28th of April, 1821, reader's note, 1820, to convey Freycinet and his crew to the port of Rio de Janeiro. But one point... Captain Galvin had failed to take into his reckoning. His ship, equipped under the flag of the independent state of Buenos Aires, then at war with the Portuguese, will be seized on entering the harbour of Rio, and he himself, with all his crew, will be made prisoners. On this, he endeavoured to make Freycinet cancel the engagement between them, hoping to prevail on him to land at Montevideo. But as Freycinet would not agree to this proposal on any ground, a new contract had to be substituted for the original one. According to the latter arrangement, Freycinet became proprietor of the Mercury on behalf of the French Navy, by payment of the sum stipulated under the first contract. The ship was renamed the Physicienne, and reached Montevideo on the 8th of May, where the command was taken over by Freycinet. The stay at Montevideo was made use of for arming the vessel, arranging its trim, repairing the rigging, taking on board the supply of water and provisions requisite for the trip to Rio de Janeiro, before reaching which port, however, several serious defects in the ship had been discovered. The appearance of the physicienne was so distinctly mercantile that, on entering the port of Rio, though the flag of a man of war was flying at the masthead, the customs officers were deceived and proposed to inspect her as a merchant vessel. Extensive repairs were absolutely necessary, and the making of them compelled Freycinet to remain at Rio until the 18th of September. He was then able to take his departure direct for France. 
and on the 13th of November, 1820, he cast anchor in the port of Havre, after an absence of three years and two months, during which time he had sailed over 18,862 nautical miles. A few days after his return, Freycinet proceeded to Paris, suffering from a severe illness, and forwarded to the Secretary of the Academy of Sciences the scientific records of the voyage, which made no less than thirty-one quarto volumes. At the same time, the naturalists attached to the expedition, Messieurs Croix, Gaimard, and Godichaud, submitted the specimens which they had collected. Among these were four previously unknown species of mammiferous animals, forty-five of fishes, thirty of reptiles, besides rare kinds of mollusks, polyps, annelids, etc., etc. The rules of the French service required that Freycinet should be summoned before a council of war to answer for the loss of his ship. The trial terminated in a unanimous verdict of acquittal from all blame the council expressing at the same time their hearty acknowledgment of the energy and ability displayed by the commander, approving, moreover, the skilful and careful measures he had taken to remedy the disastrous results of his shipwreck. A few days after, being received by the king, Louis the Eighteenth, his majesty, accompanying him to the door, said, You entered here the captain of a frigate, you depart, the captain of a ship of the line. Offer me no thanks. Reply in the words used by Jean Bart to Louis the Fourteenth. Sire, you have done well. From that time, Freycinet devoted himself entirely to the task of publishing the notes of his travels. The meagre account which has been given here will serve to show how extensive these notes were but the extreme conscientiousness of the explorer prevented him from publishing anything which was not complete, and he was bent on placing his work in advance of the recognised boundaries of knowledge at that date. Even the mere classification of the vast quantity of material which he had collected during his voyage demanded a large expenditure of time. Thus it was that, when surprised by death on the 18th of August, 1842, he had not put the last finishing touch to one of the most curious and novel divisions of his work, that relating to the languages of Oceania, with special reference to that of the Marianne Islands. End of section 28